Why 480? It's the number that drives our work lives. 480 minutes. That's all you have every workday. And the decisions that you make each minute can change everything. When you plan out your business goals over the next two years, that's only 480 workdays to get it done. In your entire 40-year career, you've only got 480 months to make an impact with your work. Time is the limit we can't control. Because time is your most precious resource. This is the Leadership 480 Podcast. Welcome to the 480 Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Alms, and my guest today is going to talk about one of the toughest things that leaders have to deal with in their 480 minutes each day. And that is what HR calls engaging your team, or as the rest of us really think of it, more like figuring out how to motivate the people to do what you actually need them to do. Spoiler alert, it's really hard. So we're also going to talk, too, about the flip side of what happens when people actually become too engaged and they enter into the danger zone of burnout. So to talk with me today, I'd like to introduce Verity Creedy, who heads up part of DDI's product management team and has also led our sales teams in Europe. Welcome, Verity. Hey, thanks so much. Pleased to be here. So tell us a little bit about what happened the first time you ever became a leader. Yeah, so the first time that I became a leader was in 2007. I went from being a project manager to being a project manager team leader. And the spoiler alert is right, because it's hard. And that was sort of the first thing that I realized. Um, Lots of people go into leadership for the pay rise. Actually, one in five go into leadership for the pay rise. And it's, it's incredibly hard. I was on a train, on a busy commuter train from London and heard this guy bragging to his friend next to him about the fact that he was going to become a leader and the salary that he was going to get with that. And I was sort of in a sadistic way, kind of chuckling in my head, thinking, (laughs) I can't wait to hear the conversations in the next few weeks because actually he did not fully realize what his new role was. And I think people are shocked to find out how challenging it is to engage people, to coach them um, so that they can really see how their work contributes to a bigger organizational picture. Um, So it really makes me realize and made me realize then in my first time as a leader that engagement is not the soft stuff, it's the really hard stuff. And it's essential to have engaged teams or you're not going to accomplish anything and be successful. Yeah, I kind of remember being in that position myself of, you know, first time I became a leader was so much harder than I ever expected. I kind of always had this assumption when I was young, right? Like, oh, I'll just be a manager, like, yeah. <laughs> I'll just manage people. I'm so much better at that part of things. And it was so hard, like all the questions and all the needs they have. And um, I can remember this moment of like, you know, we were kind of like staying late one night and somebody and, you know, my my direct report asking me like, well, like, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do it? And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, and I was like, at this point, I was like, because I made a mistake. Yeah. I made a mistake and now we have to fix it. And like that moment of honesty just yeah. totally changed everything. Yeah. And I was I was surprised um, about how that really like changed the dynamic yeah. when I started to get a little bit more honest. And she was like, all right, let's get it done. Yeah. Exactly. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as you were kind of in that first role, what did you learn about engagement? I think the main thing that I learned was that um, – 
Well, I guess a couple of things. One was that I had gone from being quite a technical expert in in this case in project management. Um, And then as I became a leader, what I realized was um, it's not very engaging to just tell people what to do. So I was chuckling the other day because um, my daughter was watching a Peppa Pig episode. (laughs) And in the in the episode, um, Madame Gazelle the teacher of the playgroup asks them what they want to be when they're older. And the first kid says, I want to be a teacher. And she's she's like, oh, lovely. And and the kid says, because I want to tell people what to do. She's like, oh, okay. And then the next kid says, I want to be a nurse. And she said, why? Oh, because I want to look after people and tell them what to do. And so you can imagine it went kind of on and on like this. And I think that's what I realized was you sort of think as as a technical expert that when people come to you with questions, you tell them what to do. And what I realized is that's not engaging at all. Um, And engagement is a bit of a balance between um, the practical stuff of getting things done, making sure people are engaged enough to do things, Mm -hmm. but also the personal side that they feel valued, that they feel satisfied, that they feel motivated. Um, And I also think, you know, as I've developed as a leader, really recognizing that engagement is also about diversity and, and about psychological safety as well. What do you mean by psychological safety? Yeah, in today's world, with the speed with which things are moving, with the, with the changes of digitalization, with just the volume of change, making people feel safe in that environment, um, I think is critical to their engagement that they feel safe at work and therefore feel they can contribute freely and comfortably. And... I think that's actually super key because I've been hearing this a lot too. Like people want to be more involved, right? Mm -hmm. Like they want to be, have a little bit more say in things and feel like they can give their ideas. Um, So what's your best kind of tactic or trick? I I don't want to call it a trick, but tactic to drive engagement. I'll I'll let you say more. It's more more strategic, right? (laughs) And it is a tactic. I think it's something I really had to learn. I think the answer to that question would be, It is about encouraging that involvement by asking questions. So finding out what really drives the individuals in terms of engagement. Um, And I think, you know, if I was to go back to that first time leader in 2007, what I would say is a couple of things that um, not making assumptions that everyone in your team is going to kind of... um, be motivated by the same stuff but also about the asking questions is both a tactic and a bit of a a trick or a tip in the fact that it really does work so um, asking questions getting that involvement you do get the personal side of people feeling good but you do get the practical side of seeing your teams achieve so much more than you ever would have even hoped for, seeing them really exceed expectations, productivity, timelines, because you've in, you, you've sought from them the best way to do things rather than as a technical expert telling them what you think they should do. So I want to capture something you said there a little bit that like different people are motivated about different things. Um, and one of the things that you know, you become a leader and like in some cases you might get a big team right away and sometimes mm-hmm. you kind of like build up over time and it's it's kind of like, you know, everything I hear when people have kids, you know, they're like, oh, you had a baby and then everyone's like, oh, wait till you have two, you yeah. know, that's when it really gets tricky. <laughs> and it's kind of like that with teams a little yeah. bit in terms of like, you know, you might start out with like one or two team, like one or two team members and you're like, I've got this and then you've got a big team. So can you talk a little bit more about that part of um, like 
the same thing doesn't motivate everybody. Yeah. So actually, I think it, I think it is, I found it was a lesson that I learned quicker when I had more team members. So when I had one or two team members, I did carry on making the broad generalizations that this engages me, it'll probably engage you, especially when you're all in the same function, right? We're all motivated around the same thing. And then there I was leading a sales team of 13 people. And that was when I thought, well, we're all in sales, right? So go with the cliche, most people are here to make money. Most people are really motivated by by achievement and and by and by um, you know making good good dollar bonuses. And what I realised is that really wasn't true. That on the spectrum, I had people who were really excited about um, were excited about selling to really get their product into the client's hands and help that client be successful. There are some who were you know maybe commercially had higher um, drive than others. There were some who um, who came at it because they like the numeric side of seeing what they're achieving. They like having numbers associated with achievement, and sales is one of the best ways to do that. And so. I think what I had to do was just really pause and just ask the question, what motivates you and what demotivates you as simple as that? And then really listen to their answers. And that then I, I had to really adjust my style to that, to recognize that to engage one person was gonna be different to engaging the other. What would motivate one would not motivate the other. And knowing what would was really important. Um, I think the other thing that I learned with a larger team was about getting all the voices out. Mm. So encouraging engagement from everybody that they felt um, involved, that they all felt that their voice was valued. So that's an interesting point too about that adaptive style of leadership, trying to do something a little bit different with each person on the team. Um, Do you think so... (laughs) Like if you're the leader and you've got the right skills and you're listening, can the right leader engage anybody? Um, I guess I'm going to say yes and no, which is sort of a <laughs> consulting answer, right? answer, right? That's right, yeah. really that's really <laughs> crystal clear for you. So I would say yes in that you can um, do your best to create an environment that that doesn't drive people to quit. So, you know, you can you can use some basic skills that'll get you some some engagement but I I would also say that um, not every individual can be automatically engaged so sometimes you're going to have to make hard choices about that and let me share an example so I had somebody who had been working for the organization for a long period of time and then joined um, into the sales team and really super smart, engaging individual um, who just was not engaged. Um, Really loved the topic of what we did, but sales was really hard for them. And what I realized was it wasn't just that it was hard, it was that they didn't really want to be doing it. They weren't really motivated by it. So they would ask for lots of training, help me be more successful, help me do this, help me do that. And they didn't have any of that um, intrigue or interest to want to learn it themselves mm. they they wanted I guess their boss to keep giving them stuff and to really manage them and when I would try and ask questions and you know seek from them it was it was just really tough um, 
And so what happened, that person, you know, stayed with the company, but moved out of sales. And then we saw that high performance really kicking in. We saw that high engagement really kicking in. And so I think it is just that you you can't just engage everybody. It has to be the right combination of them being doing something that they want to be doing as well. And that's kind of a I mean, that's kind of a happy ending story there in terms of they were able to stay with the company, find yeah. a better job. And it's so challenging in the circumstances where, you know, there's no there's no other open job for you here. Like yeah. if you can't do this, um, you know, this is really kind of the end of the road here. And especially hard when you find somebody who's so bright but maybe just good at something else. Yeah. Uh, maintaining that self-esteem is such a huge challenge. It really is. It really is because especially if they've been always been successful and then they're unsuccessful, that's, that's, that feels really hard. You know, that feels really tough. And so, you know, part of the kindness is sometimes having that conversation, even if there isn't another role available to say, does this still seem like a fit to you or not? Because it feels like it's, it's pretty hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from your own perspective, what really worked for you to drive your own engagement? Like, what did you respond well to? Yeah, um, I think I think for me, and it's probably similar for others, is that I don't think it's a one-time thing. I think that sustaining your engagement in the workplace, you find different um, different things that motivate you along the way. So firstly, I think, loving what I do it's why I've been with the same company for nearly 15 years because I really love what the company does I think um what's worked well for me to drive my engagement is to push myself and challenge myself and keep learning and keep recognizing that it's um it's okay that there are things you're not going to learn as well and that um that can be exciting I think the third thing is probably something that has evolved um, recently, and it probably sounds a bit of a cliche, but becoming a parent as well has helped me have some perspective and given me engagement from a different angle um, of, um, yeah, wanting to, um, feeling really engaged and motivated to show how you can do both um, Mm -hmm. and to show that to my daughter. Mm Mm-hmm. So kind of, you talked earlier about the personal side as mm. well as the practical. That's kind of getting to the, I'm finding fulfillment and I want to go home and I want to talk about what I do yeah. and I'm proud of it. And I um, I can manage to balance both of these things, which also kind of leads me to the next topic um, where we flip this conversation around a little bit, where we've been talking about the people who were struggling to get engaged. Mm. Um But we're also seeing huge trends of, you know, I can't tell you how many articles I've seen about burnout yeah Um, and there was even one in the Harvard Business Review recently I think said something like one in five employees is highly engaged and most at risk for burnout Mm. Um, and I also remember seeing like I think 20% of people in the UK were suffering you know were were the highest performers were also suffering from burnout and it's hugely problematic these astronomical numbers of people who just want to do well so badly that they're kind of losing that other side of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been, like you, I've been reading several different articles around it. And the high performers thing that you referenced from that UK study is often those who are most high performing and and most perfectionistic Mm -hmm. um, who, you know, let's be honest, as leaders, you love having people in your team like that, but they are the ones who are most susceptible to burnout. Um, 
And we really need to take it seriously um, as, a, as a concept. I think that's why we're seeing more and more articles around it. Really great author on the topic is Dr. Jerry Puglio. Um, she's done some really good articles, one particularly good ones on um, changewithoutburnout.com. Really, oh, cool. really interesting site. And basically in 2011, she did a TED talk and she um, had spotted a link between workplace burnout and PTSD. Wow. And that's pretty significant because right now, something like 190 billion, it's billion. I remember double checking that. And it was to do with healthcare that's attributed to workplace burnout. And the reason that we need to take it seriously is what happens if this does start to become you know, a medical factor, well, it becomes a medical disability, organizations are going to have to take it seriously in the same way that have, employing someone with PTSD you have to take seriously. So, you know, in Japan, there's stories of the Karoshi. I don't know if you've heard of this. I have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it literally translates to death by overwork. And it's, it's tens of thousands of people. I think it's, I mean, maybe it's like 20,000 people per year. Are, are sort of dying at their desks. And although we, there may not be a comparison number in other countries, there are lots of similar studies. So things like in the US, the, um, the project time off, which showed the, the billions of unused vacation time that are yeah, sitting we're, in. we're pretty bad about that. Yeah, here <laughs> it's not just here, that's the thing. It's growing really broadly in Europe, in Australia, in other parts of the world. There, There is that, that, um, that focus on people who are those high performers doing all those extras and and really helping their organization doing that but they are burning out they are they're they are so exhausted from the achievement and from the pure volume of work that they're doing that they are burning out and and needing real medical support well and it's hard because you know you see like the advice i got as a as a kid as a college student was always kind of you know, the harder you work, the more successful That's you will it. be. And if you are in doubt, work harder, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of the, like like the philosophy of like you, you're always, you can always be um, outworking someone else. You might not be the brightest in the room, but you can always <laughs> be the hardest worker, that kind of thing. So I don't know, maybe that was just me, but <laughs> I think that it's a really hard message to overcome for those who want to achieve and so I, I I read some of those articles about Kiroshi as well, and I hope I'm saying it correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I read them, I think what kind of struck me was, you know, there had been like some young journalist, like 31 years old, who had died, you know, from cardiac arrest, yeah. um, otherwise healthy, and had put in something like 160 hours of overtime that yeah. month. Um, but when I thought of that, to be honest with you, like, and so I read the article, I was like, holy cow, 160 hours, but that wasn't a month. And what that really kind of means is like, if you're thinking about dividing that out, it's an extra 40 hours a week. And where they were saying things get dangerous is putting in, they were talking about it in hours of overtime per month, you know, whether it was 40 hours of overtime a month or mm-hmm. 80. But when I thought about that, like that was, you know, 80 hours a week or stepping that back, even to where they say it's dangerous of 50, 60 hours a week, I know a lot of people in that range. You know, I, you know, I know there are many, you know, there are many lawyers, doctors, others who are easily at that 80 hour a week mark. Lots Um, of software engineers, you know, if something's going to go down or something's launching or certain times of years, they're putting in probably even more hours than that. 
And others I know, I mean, like commonly, like every day, like, you know, 50, 60 hours mm-hmm. a week is not is not crazy. And I hadn't, like when I saw it in the article, I was like, that's a crazy amount of overtime. But then when I like scaled it back, it's really not. Yeah. Um, and then I think the other part of that is those engaged people, when they are home or when they are away from the office, they're really not though. That's it. They're still, they're still like semi-present mm-hmm. but their mind is probably still on their inbox or on the code that they're writing or the reports they've got to file or yeah I mean I, and I think what was really interesting around the um, around the Kiroshi was the two aspects that they noticed as the biggest contributors um, and I'll go to the second one first because it reminds me a bit of what you were saying like you're you're, you're told growing up do more and you'll yeah. achieve more and, and that's what it talked about was the number two biggest reason for it and um, for the organizational burnout um, was associated with the culture that the organization is setting. So what mm-hmm. what are you setting? Are you saying, are you rewarding people for high performance? Do you reward people because they've worked on their weekends? Um, what tone does that send? But the number one reason was the leader. It's the relationship with my direct leader and what um, that direct leader does to set a tone around acceptable and unacceptable work um, habits. So when engagement goes too far and right. and you start to see some of those high performers potentially burning out. So what, as the leader, then what do you do about it? I think, I think one of the biggest things to do, which sounds so simple and it's, but it's really about building trust. Um, there's so much research out there, including some really cool stuff from the Oxford group, which, which talks about, um, um, organizations in high, with high trust environments versus low trust environments. And the high trust environments, it's like 70 something percent less stress. It's 40 percent mm-hmm. less burnout. It's 70 something percent, you know, more engagement. And so I think, you know, that's a big thing is about building that trust. Um, and part of that is really walking the talk. So it's one thing for a leader to be saying, you know, um, you should take all your vacation time and I notice you're working late and things like that. But if what your your team observe is that you work through your vacations and you're always working late, then it's quite hard to to feel in an in a sort of psychologically safe environment that I can do something different from you. So you have to really think about walking that talk. Like one adjustment that I've been thinking about recently is, you know, I've got a fairly new team and I've been sharing with them, you know, it's really busy first quarter of the year and and then realizing how many hours the team are putting in. But also I can't say to them, don't send emails at night, have the evening off when they're seeing me send emails at 10 o'clock. So I'm not gonna send the emails anymore. I'm gonna try and model the right behaviors and be really conscious of my own habits so that I create an environment where they can be, yeah, really supportive and then they can feel like they can get that balance and still be high performing. I am so guilty of all of the things you just mentioned. <laughs> so now I feel very, very bad and maybe we'll change. <laughs> but incredibly Awareness guilty is of the all first of those step. <laughs> maybe just changing a couple of them is a good start, but just what can we do to model that? Because I don't want anyone having death by overwork in my team. <laughs> right, and it's the do as in much as you try to say, do as I say and not as I do. Yeah. Um, it's hard, it's really hard yeah, to do that. Absolutely. Um, so then to kind of wrap things up here, there's mm. the question that we ask everyone when we talk about 480 leadership and yeah. those 
moments of high impact. Uh, tell us about a moment of leadership that changed your life. Um, I don't know that I can necessarily think about like a leadership moment for me, but I can certainly think about leaders who have changed my life. And, you know, interestingly, I'd probably answer it differently now to how I would have answered it even three, four years ago. So three or four years ago, I would have told you about probably my first leader at DDI, super amazing woman who just had all the skills for motivating and, and, and empowering all of her team, you know, including me, and the growth that I got with her as my leader. But interestingly, you know, now as a more senior leader, I had a, a kind of more profound moment of um, leadership impact. About a year ago, when, um, you know, a senior leader had shared with me some of the really difficult decisions that he had had to make. And he was talking about it, um, you know, sort of in a reflective way, um, the activities had happened a couple of years before. But I remember the way he had described some of the restructuring that had been done and and that feeling that he'd lost a little part of his soul when he'd had to have some of those conversations. And I just remember sitting there and thinking, I'm never gonna forget this moment for a couple of reasons. I think one, it was a real leader to leader conversation about the reality of how hard leadership is to go back to the right. first thing I realized in, in 2007. But I think it was also the honesty with which he talked to me about um, of what he'd had to do and about what being a senior leader can be like. And that, I think, has also given me growth in a different way, in a very different way. But it, it, it shows the, the impact of those really authentic, honest leadership moments when you're also maybe even being a bit vulnerable, the, the huge impact that can have on your team to inspire them. That's an incredible story. And yeah. I think uh, those hard moments definitely are the ones that we often get overlooked. So we, we talked about it, the, the toughness of engaging people, yeah. the difficulty of realizing when you can't. Yes. Um, and when engagement isn't, isn't going to solve it. Um, and then the hard decisions too, of when you're realizing that you're, you're at risk of, you've engaged someone so much, you're at risk of actually you know, causing them physical harm or pushing mm -hmm. them away because yeah. they're so burned out. This was a fantastic conversation and I really appreciate you joining us today, Verity. My pleasure. Uh, thank you to all of you who took the time out of your 480 to tune in and remember to make every moment of leadership count.